All right, thanks, Spence. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the other pastors here. Thanks for coming today, especially if you're new and visiting. want to welcome you, as uh, Spence just did. Glad you guys are, are joining today. Uh, we are in a series right on the Gospel of John. We've been preaching through this book now for several months, and we'll still be in it for another uh, year-ish, I guess, uh, next Easter, around that time. So a little ways to go still. But we're in John 6, 16 to 21 today. If you have a Bible or phone app and want to turn there for context, please do that. This will all be on screen in just a minute, though. Um, one thing I want to start with that I, I don't think I've mentioned yet in this series, if I have, I've, I've blanked on it, but um, many people like to note with the Gospel of John that uh, John, as, as the author, seems to include seven signs of Jesus in the first half of the book, uh, starting with the turning of water into wine and culminating with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so it's one way to outline the book. Uh, some of those miracles are actually called signs, which is where this comes from. The other ones uh, just, uh, you know, are almost on a kind of a self-explanatory basis, miracles and signs. Uh, and so they, but if you count them, there's uh, seven major ones, um, which really kind of fits neatly with how new creation focused uh, John's gospel is. If you're just joining, uh, that's a big, or, or know about John, um, that's just a big thing for John's take or slant or bent on the gospel is that Jesus is here to recreate. Uh, there's, and so having seven uh, kind of jives with the idea that God made uh, the world and the universe, everything in it, in seven days. And so to have seven signs is this kind of uh, additional signifier or almost a literary device to say that uh, God is here again and he's working again to remake, remake the world. So, if you've been counting, by chance, uh, that would make today's miracle, which is when Jesus walks on water, uh, the, fifth of, uh, the fifth sign of seven. So last week when he multiplied the fish and the loaves would be the fourth. Uh, today is the fifth of, of seven. All right, so let's read from John 6, 16 to 21 before we dive into this. We'll read it in full. Uh, so verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. All right, so a few asides to start. Uh, one thing that uh, you, you may know, uh, if you have read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, as well, other gospel accounts of the New Testament, is that uh, this is not the only account we have of Jesus walking on water. And John's account's actually a little bit more truncated, a little bit shorter. Uh, we don't have any mention here of Peter walking on the water out to him, if, if you remember that, or Jesus stilling the seas or anything. But uh, just this kind of quick moment of um, their the trouble they face with rowing, and then they see him, and, and he enters their boat, and then, then immediately they're on the other side. And so um, lots to this. A few things, though, just to kind of, especially if you're new to this story, uh, is a little bit, it's kind of, I think, one of those um, epic stories or kind of memorable ones, but uh, I know some of you maybe have not read this before. And so uh, a couple of things to start with. One, um, and maybe the most obvious, is that Jesus is just continuing in the gospel here to not just bend, but break the laws of nature. Uh, just like in the first part of chapter 5, he broke the Sabbath. Uh, something new is here, and we're seeing that. Uh, not something kind of in a continuationist way. Uh, in one sense, that's happening, of course, but in another sense, something brand new, something that just hasn't really happened before, at least on this level, through a person like this, 
uh, Jesus is establishing a New Testament, and that's coming with uh, other types of newness as well. So last week, he miraculously multiplied the fish and loaves, as I said before, out of nothing. Uh, this week, he just decides to walk, walk on water. Uh, God is over nature, or as the Psalms say, the earth belongs to him. It is his to do with what he wants. Nothing is impossible for him. Uh, but this story, I, at least for me, I don't know, I don't want to speak for all you guys, of course, but for me, this is one of those iconic stories in the gospel narratives, and there's something just... Um, mystical about it that tends to draw you in like i i like this account uh love it actually and we'll get into some things here that i think are really noteworthy but i like the account when peter's in it too and he says uh lord call me out to you as well and i'll walk on the water and and he does until he doesn't you know then he starts to sink um but just that moment of how jesus invites someone into the miracle has always been um something maybe living in the land of 10,000 lakes like there's been moments where i've been near a lake and thinking this would be a cool moment to be able to do this um, and I don't try, but <laughs> just like the really cool moments to be able to do this, whether you're water skiing or swimming, to just be able to do this. It's a very uh, otherworldly, mystical, people can't do this, right, uh, kind of thing. Uh, and that's true for other miracles, obviously, as well. But um, so maybe you can relate, but Jesus, when he's on the sea, when he's calling to people, uh, saying, It is I, when he's inviting people out, like in other accounts, um, there, there's something to this that really draws you in. Uh, but in context, uh, to remind you from last week, so he just gotten done feeding the 5,000 again. Uh, the crowds, that, that passage ends by, um, by John commenting that the crowds were seeking to make Jesus king for what he did. But it said he withdrew and didn't allow for that because his time was not here yet. Uh, it, and now we see that he has the disciples get into a boat and cross the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, which was a town on the north side of, of the sea. But clearly Jesus is not in the boat. And we'll find this, we'll learn next week, uh, we'll kind of have a little bit of an end cap on that little uh, nuance in the story, so I won't wreck that. But clearly Jesus isn't in the boat. And this is intentional. Jesus knew the storm was coming, and he knew they would get stuck, he knew that they would get afraid, and he knew what he was going to do about it. And so in terms of what this means, uh, people have said a lot of things about this passage that I think in a lot of ways are very... um, there's a lot of synergy between different approaches, but some early interpreters saw this as a parable about more about the future, about the church and the end of history when Jesus would return to save the church from trouble and persecution. Uh, others have seen it more generally as a lesson on suffering for our present lives. Um, so the darkness especially and the storm being metaphors for different kinds of trials we might experience Uh, And both those can be true, future and present, of course. Uh, But it made me think of how much darkness is a picture of pain in the Old Testament Psalms and how the psalmists cry out for deliverance. Um, So darkness, not just um, in a physical sense, but a real, like, emotional, uh, spiritual, depressive, anxious uh, kind of sense. Or maybe it's just as a metaphor for sin and the heaviness that that brings. But how the psalmist cry out for deliverance. And I think so in a lot of ways then, I think John 6 is a parable of the cries of the human race for all time. And how Jesus approaches us in our pain, not always calming the storm immediately, maybe even causing the storm, so that we would learn to rely on him and not ourselves. That's from 2 Corinthians 1.9. But in the end, promising his presence and giving us himself as the true solution rather than a temporal physical uh, healing of some kind. 
So that's actually one thing you see in John that I like. And, and if you brought all of the different uh, takes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, um, you know, you would have a fuller story. But John's take, he doesn't actually have Jesus calm the storm, which is kind of interesting. I think there's a lot of good theology in that where Jesus doesn't, this is, what, this is how he, he acts and this is what he's like in our lives, how he presents is he doesn't always calm the storm. Uh, he doesn't do that for everybody he's interacting with in the gospel account and he doesn't do that for all of us in our lives. He doesn't always take care of all of our problems now in this life. Uh, but he does offer us himself, uh, which is to say, I am your greatest need. Or it, it is to say, salvation from sin is your greatest uh, problem. And I am here to, to always say yes to that. That is not a, an in-progress prayer answer. When we, all, when we pray for those kinds of things, the hope of eternal life, um, deliverance from death, that is not a, an in-process or a maybe, or ne- it's never a no for God, but not even an in-process or a maybe. That's always an immediate, instantaneous answer. Um, but what I like here is you have this kind of sense that the storm, I don't know if the storm was totally calmed. Um, Jesus got in the boat, though, and they got through it because of his presence. And, uh, and I mentioned 2 Corinthians 1.9, but that's just one thing. You see Paul say to the Corinthians there that um, God actually br- brings you suffering so that you'll learn to rely on him and not on yourselves. And Paul learned this, right, at the end of that same letter when he says, um, I have this thorn in my side, and I'm, I'm praying against this, this thorn that God will deliver me from this physical ailment of some kind, but Jesus' response was, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. All right, so you have those kind of lessons here. That's in a a more prepositional kind of statement-based letter-like way of teaching, but this story uh, in a kind of animated way or a parable-like way or a narrative kind of way is showing us uh, the same, same kind of thing. All right, so that's a few kind of introductory asides from the big picture, a little bit of history behind that, a little bit of context. But I think there's more going on here than, than just that. And I have three additional things I want to walk us through in sync with how the story itself moves us from problem to resolution. And in, one, in five verses, it's kind of cool how you have that, right? Just so really quick, there's a massive problem, obviously, but then they're in a climax of sorts and a resolution and an outcome it's a really masterful little piece of writing in one sense, just on that level alone. Okay, so three themes. Uh, the first is the theme of frailty and grace. From verses 18 and 19, where it says, The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Other accounts uh, reference that they had been rowing for about nine hours, and three, and four, three or four miles in that time period, it, you know, it's, that's not great, I don't think. I'm not a rower, but I don't think that's really great. Um, so, uh, but they, but there's a storm. It's working against them, obviously. Uh, they're, they're, they can't see very well. They're frightened. Um, but they, when they had rowed about three or four miles, it says, that's when they, that's when they saw uh, Jesus coming, all right? And then, then it all ensues. Now, all of Jesus' miracles, there's, um, I'm not reducing this to one little lesson, uh, to be clear, but all of Jesus' miracles, either explicitly or implicitly, come with a lesson attached to it. And that lesson is, we can't do what he does. Uh, if you remember last week even, uh, this is one of the things Jesus wanted Philip to understand when he said, Philip, 
uh, how are we going to feed all these people? And remember, Philip was like, uh, it can't be done. Even if we had a spare $30,000, like just in our back pocket, we still couldn't actually uh, substantially uh, fix the problem or, or ease people's hunger. Like, we'd, be, we'd barely be able to feed them even with that amount of money. And so Philip basically says, I, we can't do it. And I think in verse 6, John includes this kind of parenthetical where he says, Jesus knew that he couldn't do it. He just said that to test him. He said that so he would understand the lesson. That is, he, he's incapable of saving people. He's incapable of doing what Jesus is later going to do. Uh, and there's a lot of grace in that. that. That can sound like, oh, come on, is Jesus just this sick, like wants us to understand our weakness and feel bad about ourselves? No, that's not it at all. But in a culture that constantly says, if you put in the work, you'll be able to do anything you want. Just put in the work, and you'll, can do, you can climb any mountain. We hear that message almost before we can understand a language. Uh, well, we for sure do. Um, but Jesus here doesn't speak that language. Jesus speaks a, different, a much better gospel, a much better grace, which is there's actually healing in knowing you can't do something, but I can. There's healing in sitting down, and like uh, Spencer said last week in reference to the uh, the feeding of the 5,000, like there's, there's, um, th- there is uh, almost a therapeutic <laughs> bent to sitting down and not working for the bread uh, like Israel did in the Old Testament. They had to go and gather the manna, but, but Israel was seated to receive the bread that Jesus has to give them. Or think about uh, from a few weeks ago when he, Jesus healed the invalid by the pool, the, the pool and the angels that would supposedly stir the water to you know, draw out its miraculous properties didn't work, but Jesus positions himself against those things to actually heal and work. Or think about his general teachings when the crowd respo- crowds respond with things like, we've never heard this type of teaching before from any person ever, ever. There's like everyone else in the world who's ever taught anything, and then there's you. There's no one else on this side of the equation. They talk in... The crowds talk in those terms as well. So it might not be just the miracles. It might just be the way he carries himself and the way he, the way he speaks. The lesson is the same. However you slice it, the lesson to Jesus' miracles is not so much, now you try, now it's your turn, as if he was a teacher, uh, but instead to understand that, that we haven't done nor can we ever do what Jesus is doing, at least on the same level. And again, there's grace for us in that. Uh, in uh, almost a therapeutic uh, relief uh, for us on that one. Really understand that God wants us to know this, like for Philip and like for the men in the boat. And, that, and that's where I think you see it today, is, is in today's passage, we see this theme in the rowing. The disciples rowed hard against the wind, but didn't really make any significant headway towards Capernaum. And remember, the context here is Jesus says, get in the boat and go to Capernaum. So he says, go do something that he knows they can't do. Jesus tells people to do things that he knows they can't do, so he'll be able to do it, and then they realize the gospel lesson, that the gospel is not about you doing, but him giving. And we can't climb the mountain. We can't cross the sea. We can't row hard enough. We can't feed the crowds. But Jesus does everything, everything throughout our life. And we watch, we behold, we gaze, we receive, we appreciate, we sit down, we marvel at someone else doing the work. This is the posture of the Christian. And so really all that they got was the, the, the disciples here when they rode was fear. Uh, I, I really like the inclusion of imme- the immediacy of it. I mentioned that before, I think. But um, when Jesus gets in the boat, 
they're immediately to the other side. And so again, when left to our effort and strength, we get nowhere. But with Jesus, things change instantly. Uh, this, for me, there's echoes of um, Zechariah 4.6, which is when the Lord says through Zechariah, not by your strength, not by your might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Not by what you do, not by your strength, not by your might, not by anything that you have to give whatsoever, but by my spirit, says the Lord, but by my strength and my might. That's what it means to be whole and to be human and to be saved and to be a person of God, is to understand these things and to come underneath the loving care of that gracious idea. It actually reminded me of the book of Jonah, uh, and actually, there's a lot of correlation between this story and the story of Jonah in the Old Testament that John doesn't highlight as many things as the synoptics do, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, but in both stories, there is a man who sleeps on a boat, for example. If you remember that whole thing, Jonah's asleep when the storm arises, and Jesus is asleep on the boat as well. Um, so whether it's a different story or not, it doesn't really matter. But there's, there's this moment where you have two people sleeping, and everyone else is trying to work really hard. Um, there's a lot of correlations I don't have time to go into today, but, the, but in the book of Jonah, there is also a major storm. And Jonah, who was a prophet, uh, knowing he was to blame, offered to throw himself into the sea so that the storm would stop. But do you remember what the rowers did with that piece of information when they heard that, when they heard that suggestion from, from Jonah, they're like, uh, what? No, weird. Uh, we got this. We'll just row harder. That's what we do for a living. We're mariners. We're sailors. We, we're good at this. We'll get us, back to, get us back to land. Actually, in verse 13, it says, instead, instead of Jonah killing himself so the storm would stop, instead of Jonah throwing himself over, overboard, to certain death, so that the storm would stop. They said, instead, we have a better idea. We'll work hard to get us back to land. We'll be the solution. We'll save you. We'll save ourselves. We'll save the boat. And so it's the same lesson, but with, uh, with an added twist here. Uh, two things are being contrasted. Jonah's death and the rower's strength. That's the point of Jonah 1. And of the gospel, which we'll get to here in a second. Jonah's death and the rower's strength, which is, as we approach the New Testament, it's the same thing as saying the sacrificial death of a prophet versus our ability to row and to save ourselves. And so where does salvation, if the question is, where does salvation come from amidst trouble and amidst sin and our impending death and our separation from God amidst the storm of those things, where does it come from? Well, John 6 gives us the answer. It's clearly the man who walks on the water, right? Even if you know nothing about Jesus or about anything in context here, you would say, well, it's probably the guy walking on water that we're going to look to you know, to, to, to save us, right? It's from him. So the answer to the question, where does it come from, is, is Jesus. Not the muscles in our arms, nor the oars in our hands, nor the good intentions of our minds, nor the pious deeds in our heart. Only Jesus' blood. Only his Jonah-like self-sacrifice. Only his grace. To quote Jonah 1 here again, 
Salvation is not about you doing your best. Isn't that good news? The rowers did their best, but it didn't work. It actually made the problem worse. Uh, God is not asking you to do your best. He does not want the best version of you uh, to work that out of you somehow, as if that's like what salvation is. Salvation is not about doing your best. It's about Jonah being thrown overboard, Jesus being thrown overboard into the mouth of a sea monster, being crucified and buried for three days and three nights and bursting forth out of that tomb. See, the Bible contrasts these ideas. It puts a stark black line right between them. It does not blend them. There is work. There's, there's our idea of what it means to work ourselves for salvation. And there is God saying, I will do everything. But they cannot be blended. Do you see that? This is the same thing here in John 6. I mean, Jonah's just a whisper. In fact, John 6 is kind of a whisper, too, of something greater. But and that is the cross. We'll get to more of that in a second. But the point here is uh, the relief for, for me, for you, is that you doing your best is never, ever enough. In fact, it only makes the storm worse. Instead, it's only Jesus' death that works. More on that in a little bit. Okay, the second theme then that flows from this has to do with uh, Jesus' affirmation. Uh, the one time he, uh, he speaks, the, the, the effective red letters uh, in, in the passage. <clears throat> and that is, a God seeks us out. The, th- the broader theme is, God seeks us out. This passage uh, reminded me a lot this week of Genesis 3, uh, when Adam and Eve rebel against God and, and sin, and then they hide from God. It's one of the first, uh, it's the first thing humanity did, actually, when they sinned, is we need to hide from God because we have shame and guilt and we know we did something wrong. But the good news of the Bible is not that man learned how to be a seeker of God, but rather that God seeks out rebels, whether in gardens or whether on stormy seas. And so, like in John 6, it's Jesus who finds the disciples, right? Uh, the, the, the idea here of who's the active party continues to be, this is one of the more prominent, uh, I, I would say, points of observation, just at give you guys a bit of a tidbit here. If you're brand new reading the Bible, even if you're not, always look for this in narrative. Who's in the active role and who's in the passive role? Um, here it's Jesus finding the disciples, not the other way around. And, and I love his affirmation where he says, it is I, don't be afraid. Because this says, Jesus is the reason we shouldn't fear. He himself and, and it's his own self-disclosure and his own movement towards us that matters. It's what I think we all truly want to hear in the end. You might not be a Christian yet in the room, uh, but I think deep down, um, Christian or not, this is what we all really want to hear. We, we don't want to hear um, this call to self-promote. It's exhausting to say, I'm here, like speaking of ourselves, I'm here, look at me and my life and my issues and my successes and, and all of that. But really what we want is someone else to say, don't worry because I am here. And especially when that's God. Like we might be able to resonate with that on a human level a little bit, like if a loving parent says that to us when we're a kid or a loving spouse or even a friend. Um, but here it's God saying, don't worry because I'm here. But really instead, I think, I sort of alluded to this earlier, I, I think we're all so easily seduced away to 
this worldly call to have people look at us or this call to row harder or truisms, like if you just work harder, you can do uh, anything. Those are seductive. They draw us away. They're almost more practical. Um, You know, legalism is more practical than grace, right? It just is. That's why it's more attractive because it's easy to check lists off and do things. And so we like it because it, it helps us to feel like we're, we're proving that we're a Christian. We're proving that we're working for maturity. But grace is abstract. You can't check a box uh, to, like, you know, accomplishing grace or working out grace. You can only receive it. It's a very abstract idea. It's wrapped up in, in everything, in something you guys do, do nothing with or nothing about. It's completely in the hands of God. And so while truisms like if you just work hard, you can do whatever you want, um, or just kind of that, that uh, arrogant call to look at me um, are very seductive. The, the better gospel here, the better news is that Jesus says, it's me. I am here. Don't be afraid because you don't have to work anymore to impress me. You don't have to do anything but just receive me. So those former things are exhausting. They're just exhausting. But the gospel is invigorating it's life-giving. It's energizing. One other thing to here to mention that really helps, I think, understand the meaning is that seas in the Bible, oceans, seas, are metaphors not just of suffering but of sin and of divine wrath and of judgment. Um, so I'm not going to go into all of that. We could spend all morning looking at examples of that. But think of like Noah, Noah's, the story of Noah's ark and uh, what, the, what the floodwaters represented there, for example, or in the Psalms and the prophets, they bring up this theme quite a bit, actually. Um, but, but if that's true, then one of the questions that this elicits for us is, when you sin, do you believe Jesus is coming for you still? Or does he stand far off, disappointed? Like, when you sin, not before, uh, but during, I mean, and after. Like, is Jesus still pursuing you, still trampling on the waters and storms of your sins? Or is he standing off disappointed waiting for you to sort of um, atone for and and fix the problem or undisappoint him or have a little while in your life where you're not sinning so you feel better about praying again or going to church? Um, But what, what this is a picture of is Jesus amidst the sin of the disciples, he tramples it. Um, Or as I write here, this is the true battle we often face. It's a battle of faith. But here's the gospel. On your worst days, he is, as Kim Crandall says, stubbornly seeking to redeem you. Uh, His love, I I think in this passage and elsewhere, the love of God is almost obnoxious. Our, Our sins are like a tempest, a destructive hurricane, and Jesus walks right through it and tramples on it to get to us, to show us that sin is no threat to true love. Love is always stronger. That is something uh, that, that you and I need to tattoo on our brains when the darkness creeps in, when you feel like there's no way out and there's no hope. Depression and anxiety and shame and guilt and fear and not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow or up here. And what, what we need to tattoo on our brain and heart is that Jesus walks right through the storm to get to you. He walks Even as you're sinning, he's still actively moving towards you to save you. 
See, what you believe about God in those moments says everything about your theology. If you don't believe that, or have some kind of chink in your armor, so to speak, of that, where there's a little bit of room for maybe God is just really mad at me and, and just upset with me. Maybe he is waiting for me to get my life a little bit more in order and to live in light of the salvation that I, that I have been graciously given. Maybe he is like saying, why don't you like appreciate what I've given you? Like if there's any kind of version of that God in your mind, what, what this is saying is, what this is helpfully, lovingly saying, correcting us with is God is not like that. As you're sinning, he's moving towards you to save you. I mean, and that, to understand that God is just crazy in love with you like that, that is the only thing that will change you and transform you. It is that kind of reckless, obnoxious, scandalous, you've never seen it before in your life love that will transform your heart and make you open up like a flower underneath his love. And that's, that's what transforms us. Nothing else. Nothing else religious. Nothing else tit-for-tat based. Nothing else law-centered or commandment-centered. You can't like tell that into existence or tell someone to change. It's only like hearing a story that's nothing to do with you. But hearing a story about God and what he's like, that, that this is what Christianity believes, that, cause, that, that elicits that transformation and change. Uh, it's not the law, as Romans says. We're not under the law anymore, but grace. And the reason why we won't be under the mastery of sin, Romans says in one of the chapters, that is because we're under grace, not the law. If you live under the commandment and the law, you will be under the mastery of sin. But if you're under grace, under all these, all these ideas, that is what will actually set you free. And that gets me to my last point, which is to get more into the how. How has all this really come to a head? How does Jesus ultimately do all of this? Uh, and I've kind of been alluding to it, but uh, the final piece is that Jesus takes the brunt of the storm. All right, so I want to start here by saying um, it's probably best here in this story to remember that Jesus is a human being. Um, so I, I mentioned first service if I, uh, like, if I was a heretic, um, my flavor of heresy would be Jesus is a little bit more God than man. Like that would be, that'd be my, I don't believe that to be clear. Um, but that would be my, that's, what I, that's the type of heresy I'm kind of bent towards is, is picturing these stories almost like Jesus is floating like one inch above the ground like a ghost, you know, um, and, and forgetting that he was just as much human as you and me. And it had to happen, otherwise you couldn't advocate for us, die in our place, all those kinds of great gospel ideas. But with stories like this too, this is a clear depiction of his divinity, right? He's walking on water, so clearly Jesus is God here. But also to remember that he is human. He's, he's, uh, he is condescended, he's lower. He is, like Philippians 2 says, he became nothing. Uh, he came out of heaven and became so low that he became like us. And I think with stories like this, we need to remember this so we understand where these stories are headed. So this is what I mean by this. When you picture this story in your mind, uh, don't picture a force field around him as he walks through the storm, kind of like the Incredibles, um, which you might, may or may not be inclined to do. This is, again, my, this is my favorite flavor of heresy. Um, but this is not probably what it looked like. Or he, he's not like your, your favorite uh, psychic-type Pokemon 
with a force field around it, or pick your favorite superhero. He was, in other words, exposed. Jesus was exposed as a human being on the water. Probably more like this. He was being beaten against by the very wind he was seeking to save his friends from. The very thing he was seeking to save his friends in the boat from, he was, in that moment before he got in the boat, taking the hits. Do you see where this is going? See, questions when I ask when I read this story are, did he have some cuts or bruises from hailstones? Were his clothes ripped in the wind? Were his eyes raw from that wind blowing? Maybe he had a, something in his eye because it was blown in there right before he got into the boat? Was he out of breath? You ever been in like a lot of wind and you can't breathe that well? So you have to kind of do like this so you can kind of breathe a bit more? Has no one done this before? I, I have to do this sometimes. Um, and I think the answer to all those questions is absolutely yes. Yes, he was hurt on the water. Had to be. He was human. So the point is, salvation always comes at a cost. And especially later in the story, when Jesus would walk on water at the highest level, at Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he would die, where he would trample our sins by way of taking a beating for us. See, if, if walking on the water is a picture of salvation, there must be some semblance of the suffering of Christ because there is no salvation apart from the suffering of Christ. So there must be some sense to which Jesus is suffering in the early stories if there especially is in the latter capital S story. This is how to understand the Bible. Everything is about that moment. Everything in the Bible, whether explicit or implicit. Uh, Psalm 69, David's words, which are really Jesus' words, say, the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire. I have come into the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. So you see, there's going to be a moment in Jesus' story where he's not just walking on water, taking the hit of the storm. He will actually sink. He will go down. He will be enveloped. He won't just be beaten against, but he'll be swallowed by the storm, swallowed by the tempest, swallowed up by the mire for you and me in love, into death and hell, and then back again, in to the heart of the sea monster, like Jonah, and back out again. Into the tomb and back out again. All these stories relate. They're all about him. They're actually not as much about you as you think. Because you haven't done that. But see, he has. He has gone as a forerunner, Hebrews says. Into the fish, into the sea, the stormy sea. Into the tomb. And then bursting forth three days later, he, he comes out overwhelming death and offering us that free life after atoning for our sins. See, we can't, we can't say it, we say it a lot here, but we really can't say it or see it enough in the Bible. Salvation is not just escape. It's escape by way of someone else not escaping. Does that make sense? Christian, the way Christians understand salvation is not just that that um, we, we escape from sin and death. Of course, that's true, but it's, there's a how. 
Is it in what way? Like, how does that occur? And we see it here in John 6. It comes at the expense of someone else suffering. Someone else not escaping. Jesus wasn't let down from the cross after five hours. Like, it wasn't, well, that's enough suffering, but before you die. Like, there, he could have. Again, think of Jonah, but think of Jesus here as well, who was out in the middle of the storm, away from the safety of the boat, taking the brunt, giving us hints that he will soon do this for all of us at the highest level. He will die for our sins and ensure that we make it safely to dry land. That's the gospel. So then if we like go back and ask, well, what is this really saying? It's saying, it's saying a lot of things. Hopefully you've heard that. Um, but it's ultimately saying that. I, I think this passage has an invitation for us if we, if we are the disciples in this story, which I've never heard anybody disagree with that idea, like, but whatever, let's just, I'll just say that. If we are the disciples in the story, and we are, we're in the boat, we're not the Jesus figure, we're not Jesus, there's an invitation for us, I think, to look at, the, look at the story as though Jesus is coming to us, but also look at what didn't work. And, and here's, the, here's the lesson. Stop rowing against the grace of God. Stop trying to be impressive. God is not your life coach, nor is he asking you to work harder. So put down your oars and just believe in Jesus. Receive him into the boat of your soul. You are saved by grace alone, through faith. This is not of your own doing, but the gift of God every single day of your life, right up until you take your last breath in this life, and then onward into eternity. He never changes, his love never ends, and he loves you. In him, in Christ, everything really is going to be okay. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this passage. Uh, thank you for the, the parable of grace that it is for us. Um, like everything in John has been up to this point. Uh, but we thank you that this is a word you had for us today. You, um, like for the disciples, you wanted them to understand they couldn't do something that you later did. Um, it, it's the same for us. The whole Bible, in a lot of ways, your whole word is, is, is mapped out along these lines. The law came first, which couldn't be kept. And then Jesus came in, per, in a perfectly obedient manner to his Father's will, uh, replaced all of it with his bloody body and made a New Testament. And Jesus, we thank you that you are a gracious king, that you trample our sins, that you come to us in the storms of life and comfort us, but also come to us in the sins of our life. And save us, as Romans 5, 7 says, while we're still sinners, we're saved. Not after we start to realize this or figure some things out or make a bit of a course correction morally, but while we're still enemies, while we're still sinners. That's what John 6 is about. The storm is our sin. The tempest, the hurricane, the wind is our sin and our rebellion. So thank you for Jesus that you came into the world to find people that hide, uh, hide behind bushes in our shame uh, from you. Uh, you came to, to seek us out, to seek and save the lost, uh, Jesus, you say. Thank you so much for the grace that there is in that, that we're not left to be seekers of you. We don't have to seek you because you're, you're seeking us, and it's a better kind of seeking. We would never find you if we sought anyway. So thank you for that. 
And um, thank you especially, Jesus, for taking the brunt, for taking the hits of the wind, the very wind that you were seeking to save us from, just like you took the hits of sin on the cross, the very sins you were seeking to save us from. Substitutionary love. That's um, your word for us. Help us to really hear that, be wrecked and moved by that today, maybe humbled and um, welled up towards belief and uh, into more love for others. In Christ we pray, amen.